Well, good morning. Uh, if you're familiar with the text we're going to be going through this morning, it's about godly wisdom and earthly wisdom. Now, I, I wanted to use the lower pulpit so you'd know that I'm full of godly wisdom, and these guys aren't for climbing up here. But the truth is, when I saw Rob up here, I was worried that I'd be too short for this pulpit. You wouldn't see me. <laughs> we're going to be continuing our study in James, and I think it, it's a bit ironic. You know, one of the things that Ryan started with last week is that it, it was God's sense of humor on display that the intern would be getting up and preaching a sermon on uh, the power of the tongue. As they are typically the guys that are quick to critique theology. Anytime a preacher preaches about godly wisdom, you're immediately thinking, am I really the man for the job here this morning? And I couldn't help but think that as I was preparing this sermon. But uh, this is an incredibly encouraging text, and I hope you'll be encouraged as I was in preparation for it. If I could ask you to stand with me as I read God's word for us. I'll be reading out of James 3:13 through 18, and if you have a liturgy guide, you'll find our passage in there as well. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, for, uh, thank you for this day. Thank you for this wonderful word that you give us, that you show us the path to true wisdom, and you show us the dangers of the path that leads to destruction. Uh, we thank you that through your Son, we can stand in your presence and approach you and seek that wisdom as your children. And uh, my prayer is that as we consider this passage this morning, that we would come away with a deeper understanding of just how lovely you are, and just how wonderful your love for us is, and just how beautiful it is to walk in your ways. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, we live in a world that's filled with um, different voices that are vying for our attention, that are looking for a platform in our lives, right? Uh, Janie and I were talking about this, and uh, she made the offhand comment that when people are weighing out the bigger questions in life, when they're considering the weighty question, questions of life, one of the first places they go is Google. So in a sense, Google is one of the most popular sages of our era, really. And if you think about it, even as Christians, sometimes I'm like, oh, I wonder what this means. And I search it in Google before I open the Bible, right? We're all prone to that. Why is that? Because there's this platform that's easily accessible that gives us access to knowledge. We see the same thing in the social media world, I think. Um, social media is a good thing that we all use. We connect with one another, we connect with family, we learn about people uh, that we love and care about, and we build relationships through it. But it's also this huge platform that's really predicated on the basic premise that you are free and validated in self-promotion, and that you can present a version of yourself and have access to a version of reality that's anything that you want it to be and that that will satisfy you. 
Um, the reality is, is that's, that's based on a false idea about what is true, what is good, and what is lovely. And when we talk about biblical wisdom, especially here in the book of James, uh, we're talking about two types of wisdom, one that centers on us, and then one that centers on God. And if you remember in the last passage that we studied, Ryan pointed out for us that the contents of our heart are often displayed in the words that we use. And so James is basically working off that same premise again, and he's saying the type of wisdom that our heart is filled with, that we live by, is also predicated on the focus of our heart. So the main idea of our passage that we're going to consider this morning is that God gives us wisdom through Christ so that you and I don't have to live by the wisdom of this world. And there's three things that James makes clear for us that kind of illustrate this idea. Uh, first, that earthly wisdom is actually self-destructive. Uh, second, that godly wisdom makes us whole. And then third, that whole people share that wholeness with other. that godly wisdom shares that wholeness with other, others. So the first point, that earthly wisdom is self-destructive. Uh, we saw last week that we can um, build people up or we can destroy people merely with our tongue. Uh, and here, James is pointing out that the way we live also can bring life or it can bring destruction and misery as well. And so when he points out very curtly that there's two types of wisdom that we tend to live by, he's illustrating for us that both of these things influence the way that we live. And it's based on a value system that we buy into. In verse 15, he describes wisdom that comes from below in three different ways. And uh, he uses very powerful terms here. First, he says that it's earthly. And what he means is that it's focused on the here and now. Earthly wisdom is based on a world where God doesn't really matter. All that matters is you and I. Second, he says that it's unspiritual. It ignores the spiritual realities that are all around us all the time. It's focused on selfish and self-serving desires and wants. Unspiritual or earthly wisdom really is based on the idea that if you serve yourself, that's good and right. And then finally, that it's demonic. And here he's saying that earthly wisdom doesn't even acknowledge God. And it's focused on a life that doesn't think that it owes an acknowledgement or a relationship with its creator. So in essence, what James is telling us that earthly wisdom, instead of doing what the Bible calls us to do, glorify God through our relationship with him, it's driven by motives in our hearts that are all centered around us. And so worldly wisdom really is revealed in the motives of our heart. And James is uh, asking Strip, he asks us, what's in your heart then? If you notice in verse 14, he says, what, what are the motives that drive your daily life? Is it selfish ambition? Is it jealousy, bitter jealousy that fills your heart and drives how you live? Both of these things really are the result of the belief that all things exist to serve and to glorify ourselves. And when they don't, furthermore, we become filled with selfish ambitions that center around making ourselves happy at us. And they're filled with a jealousy and envy at what others have. And James goes on to say that the worst part here is that we boast about ourselves and lie about the truth regarding what real wisdom is. It convinces us to live as if we are the center of our own universe. And you know, if you think about that, that's the MO of all of fallen humanity. 
that we are convinced that if we live for ourselves, that we'll truly be satisfied and happy. James is getting to the core of the problem with earthly wisdom in a very short set of verses. And what he points out for you and I is that it convinces us to live as if we are the center of the universe and nothing else matters, not even God. The results, if you look at verse 16, he says that the results here are disorder in every vile practice. He says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist in our lives and in our hearts, disorder and every vile practice are sure to follow. And so when I thought about that statement, uh, one of the things that came to me is all the times that I try not to defend myself and boast. And just as an experiment, think about what life would be like if you tried not to defend yourself or justify your thoughts or your words or your actions for one week. It would be a train wreck. <laughs> we would all be deeply disturbed at how often we are quick to justify our thoughts and our judgmental thoughts in our hearts, our selfish motives, and the reasons that we hide for what we do and what we say and how we live. The end result is that we're constantly striving to make ourselves happy. And what's the outcome of that? We're miserable. And that's what James is really pointing out for us here. That when we become entangled in bitterness, in jealousy, when we are living with selfish motives and self-seeking motives, really the end result is that we're always miserable, which ironically is the exact opposite of what we're seeking. We also begin to boast about ourselves more because we need to justify what we're driving at. If you think about it, the most miserable people that you know or will meet in your life are the people that make everything about them. And I can tell you that from personal experience. My most miserable seasons in life is when everything is about me. Everything people say, everything people do, I interpret it through the lens of how it affects me, what it says about me, or what it means to me. And I end up miserable. Uh, you know, a great example of this is to, um, and it's a shame Rob's not here, he'd be very happy, but this is my first Lord of the Rings reference actually ever preaching here. A great example of this is Smeagol. When he finds the ring, he finds this ring that has all this power that really gets him so caught up in it that he gets obsessed with the power of the ring and what he thinks it's going to do for him. And so much so that he becomes enslaved to it. And it transforms him. It turns him into a monster and eventually it destroys him. James is saying that earthly wisdom and the selfish and self-centered desires that it cultivates in our hearts does the same thing to us. And so James is showing us that when we live by earthly wisdom, we're only seeking to glorify ourselves. And tragically, we not only end up miserable and living in a self-destructive way, but we bring that misery into all our relationships with other people. If you notice this entire passage and the sermon that we heard last week, the passage that we studied in the first half of chapter 3, all happens in the context of human relationships, our relationship with God and then our relationship with other people. Conversely, godly wisdom creates a life that seeks to glorify God and not glorify ourselves. And that's our second point, that godly wisdom makes us whole. 
You know, as I talked about in the beginning, whether it's from social media or what we read or who we listen to, the people that have uh, influence in our lives, every single one of us is being shaped by something. We're always being influenced by something. And uh, that's one of the basic core truths of the Bible is that we're all being shaped by God or we're being shaped by something else in the world. And earthly demonic wisdom makes us the center of our own universe. We already see that, and we see the fruits of that, the outcomes of that in our lives and the lives of others. And so here, James turns and contrasts that with the wisdom from above, or godly wisdom. And what he's highlighting is that godly wisdom is never centered around ourselves or self-seeking motives. It's always centered around God and our relationship with him. And it also has a perspective on life, on ourselves, and on reality that's also shaped by God and not anything in the world. That in itself always begins with worship. Anytime that you read scripture and you address the topic of biblical wisdom, it always begins with the idea of worship. And worship is based in a relationship with our creator. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And if you're familiar with the Proverbs at all, anytime that it uses the word fear here, it's not talking about a sense of being intimidated or threatened by something. When it talks about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom, it's speaking about a healthy and proper sense of reverence and awe for who God is, for how holy he is and how majestic he is. And that's the proper context in which we approach God in a relationship and begin to worship him. It's not because we are to fear him as if we cannot approach him, but we have a healthy sense of just how holy and just and powerful he is. And that fills us with a natural sense that drives us to worship him for who he is. That being the case, we also see that godly wisdom begins with a genuine humility. And you see that in this passage that we're looking at this morning. James uses the same word that he used in chapter 1. He used the word meekness. And that meekness really talks about a posture of our heart, of being humble before God and how we approach him, how we think about him, and how we live before him. And that's something that we can't do for ourselves. I mean, if we're honest, there's, there's no one in this room that is capable in and of themselves to approach God with genuine humility and a posture of worship on any given morning. I mean, think about your thought life and what's running through your heart at the beginning of any given day, and you'll realize that your default response is not humility, gratefulness, gratitude, a posture of humility before God. We're constantly vacillating between different things. Rather, it's something that God promises to do for us and through us. And uh, there's a lot of different ways that he does that, but two significant ways that I think we can see uh, here in James and all throughout Scripture, perhaps the two most important ways. First and most significantly, he does that for us through Jesus, through our relationship with Christ. In the passage that Rob was reading this morning in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is going through basically from verse 18 through 31, he goes through this whole explanation of the reality that those of us that God has called 
have been called not because we are the wise of the world, but because we're the foolish of the world. And that's actually one of the main ways that God displays his glory to the fallen creation, is that he takes those of us that are not considered very high, very noble, very wise, the foolish of the world, and he raises us up and saves us and brings us into a relationship with Christ. In verse 18, he points out that the cross is actually foolishness to those that reject it, to those that don't know Jesus. It's actually the most foolish thing in the world. But to us who are being saved by it, it's actually the glory and the power of God being revealed, not only to us, but he puts it on display in and through us as well. In verse 30, Paul says that because of what God has done, you and I live in a relationship with Christ, we're in Christ Jesus who literally becomes for us the wisdom of God. You know, Rob explained that, that the wisdom of God is revealed in the means in which he has chosen to save us through Jesus. And he also becomes our righteousness and our sanctification in the means of our redemption. The way that we are brought into a proper relationship with the creator of the heavens and the earth isn't because we suddenly become wise and perceive the way that we go about doing that. It's literally because God comes down, lifts us up, puts us on display as trophies of his grace, and that's through Christ and what he does. And at the end, if you know, what does he say? He doesn't say that we boast in ourselves. He says he does all this so that when you and I boast, we joyfully boast in what the Lord has done in us and through us, not boasting in ourselves. The other way that God does this for us is through his word and through his spirit. One of the most liberating revelations uh, for me in my walk of faith was the reality. It's the most disturbing and the most liberating was the reality that all of Scripture was about Jesus and it wasn't about me. And there was a long time that I read the Bible through the lens of it being all about what God was going to do for me. And unintentionally what happened was God became a personal assistant to my life. So everything that I would read in Scripture, I would think, okay, God loves me. He's working for me. This is great. This is a great plan for living. I like this. But when I realized that all the scriptures highlighted what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians, that God was raising me up, somebody that was foolish in the world, and raised me up in Christ, he was putting me on display. And that all the scriptures point towards that reality, that God reveals what is truly good and beautiful and right and truly wise to the world through his Son. Uh, the Bible is in a book based on that. We realize when we read scripture that the Bible is in a book about random truths or bits of wisdom that we learn and then incorporate into our lives so we can live successfully and be happy by our own designs and our own desires and our own plans. Uh, rather, the word shows us that we've been raised to new life and we live for the glory of God. And that happens through the work that the spirit does in transforming you and I. First and foremost, in our hearts. And then that bleeds out into our lives and how we live. And that especially applies to the truths of Scripture that center around the personal work in Jesus. James 1.21, Rob was talking about this when we went through the second half of James 1, that we're called to receive the implanted word with meekness, with a sense of, with a sense of humility. And when we talked about the implanted word, what he was talking about is the reality that when God plants his word into our hearts and then the Holy Spirit reveals the realities and the truths of his word, that that's a living thing that transforms us from the inside out. 
And that's not just a head knowledge about who God is or what he's like, not even just a head knowledge about what the gospel is. That's not actually what makes us whole people. But it's actually the ability to understand it, to have it transform our hearts, and then to have that reality transform how you and I live. And that's the key to how we glorify God, actually. It's not that you and I just one day become wise because we've read enough scripture, prayed hard enough, or served enough, and boom, we got it, we're wise people. But we go through this process where the Spirit applies all the promises and all the realities of what Jesus has done for us to our hearts, and he raises us up in new life. He transforms us from the walking dead, those that live foolishly, into people who are living by the Spirit and glorifying God through how we do that. That's how God makes us whole people and saves us from sin. You know, the first time that uh, I ever hiked Mount Whitney, I hiked it with Rob, with Pascal, and another good friend of ours. And uh, none of us had ever done a hike of that stature. It's the highest peak in the lower 48 states. And it's the first time any of us had ever hiked above 14,000 feet. And so we went up to the trailhead where this, uh, where this is small shop and uh, we wanted to get a look around and do a short hike to try and acclimate ourselves. And we were nervous about what the weather was going to be like because we couldn't get a clear weather forecast either. So we walked into the shop and I asked the lady at the counter, I said, hey, is there anybody that's wrapping up their hike today that knows what the weather conditions are like up there? And she says, yeah, you should go talk to that guy over there. I said, which guy? And she's like, that guy over there, just call him Crazy Jack. And so I walked over to this guy. And I said, hey, I, I, the lady at the counter told me that you just wrapped up the hike. He said, yeah, I just finished right now. And I said, she also said I should call you Crazy Jack. And he said, yeah, that's what most people call me. I said, well, why is that? He said, because I've done this hike 156 times. So we began to talk to him. Rob and I were standing there with him, and we began to talk to him. And I said, so what's the weather like up there? What do you think it's going to be like tomorrow? And he said, you know what? Nobody knows what the weather's going to be like up there tomorrow. You can read all the weather forecasts you want, but when you get that high up there, there's no telling what it's going to be like until you get up there. And I said, okay, well, what do you do? And he's like, well, I'll tell you what I've learned to do. I go up there and I take it bit by bit. I see what things look like, and if it looks safe, I make the wisest decision possible and I keep going. And when it looks like the weather's going to turn, I turn around. The man didn't just have knowledge about the trail, although after 156 hikes, he knew everything about it. But he had the wisdom that came from experience in walking the trail and knowing what to do and when to do it. That's what God does for us in making us whole. Uh, when the Spirit reminds, and how does that apply to you and I? So think about this. When the Spirit reminds you and I that the maker of the heavens and earth gave his son to save you and I from sin, from ourselves and our selfishness, we are genuinely humbled with that reality, and it changes us. The Spirit fills us with a desire to live before him and others in real humility, not fake humility that makes us look like humble people, but because we're genuinely grateful for what God's done for us. When we see that the Spirit has given us this identity and new relationship with God, that we have this cherished identity in Christ, we're freed from all the desires and self-seeking ideas that earthly wisdom gives us to be something that we're not. Because who we are in Jesus is so much more meaningful than anything else we could ever be or anything that the world could convince us that we could be. Furthermore, when you and I are reminded by Scripture of how Christ died for us, when we were still his enemies, 
And the Spirit reminds us of how gentle and patient and kind God is with you and I every time that we sin, even knowing that. We are filled with the desire to be people who are genuinely gentle and patient and kind and long-suffering with others because God is constantly reminding us that that's what he does for us through his Son. So in this short passage, really what James is showing us is all these character traits that this transformation cultivates in us. And he compares that with what earthly wisdom cultivates in our hearts as well. And it results in how we live. And that all plays out in the relationships that we have in our life, the relationships that God calls us to enter into. And that's the third point, that wise people share their wholeness with others. Uh, one of the greatest gifts that I've learned that God gives us as his people is the gift of being able to pour into others and to affect others for the glory of God. And godly wisdom really enables us and teaches you and I how to do that. Uh, James points out a few different ways that we can see this happening in relationships. Uh, first, if you notice, he says that godly wisdom is pure before anything else. Uh, it's pure and genuine in all its motives. And you know, if you look at the Gospels and you read about the life of Jesus, he did that perfectly. Jesus was perfectly pure in every motive and how he loved God and how he loved other people. And the beautiful thing is that the Spirit takes that and he applies that to us as well. He fills us with the same genuine motives in our own lives. A second, that godly wisdom is gentle and open to reason and full of mercy. Uh, it considers others and their needs as a way of honoring God and also honoring that person. Uh, it's quick to show mercy to others when they need it the most. And it always involves a gentle spirit, especially when it involves correcting someone. And you know, this is what Paul is highlighting in Ephesians 4 and verse 15 when he says that we're all called to practice truth and love with one another. That involves a gentle spirit when we're correcting each other and helping each other grow. And you know, when I was reading this, I have to tell you that the person that I was thinking about was our ruling elder, Herb Smith, actually. If you ever have the honor of being corrected by anybody, you want it to be Herb L. Smith. I could tell you from not only of having the privilege of doing counseling with him, but having him pull me aside and gently correct me that this man has such a gentle and considerate spirit when he presents you with truth. You don't even know you're being admonished. It's like you walk away and you're like, I don't know what just happened right there, but I, I feel so good about it. It seems so right, everything he said, that I feel great, but I think he just rebuked me. I can't tell. <laughs> Herb is the kind of man that will build you up with genuine affection for 20 minutes and then knock you down and pick you back up and dust you off and make you feel great about it. That's what God says godly wisdom will cultivate in us. That's what he's going to do in and through us. So people experience that gentleness through us as well. And uh, finally, um, and this is one that I, I love and cherish so much as I've needed it so often in my own life, is that uh, it's sown in peace by peacemakers. And that's because godly wisdom produces a deepening sense of gratitude in you and I for the peace that we have with God because of what Jesus has done, right? And when we have this deepening sense of gratitude, 
we also are filled with a desire to be peacemakers in our lives and our relationships. And a hallmark of a peacemaker is always a person who's eager to bring reconciliation, not conflict, right? And that means that we are people who are quick to repent when we've harmed others, uh, that we're people who are quick to forgive when others have harmed us, and that we are eager to forfeit our own rights so that other people who are stumbling can be restored to God and restored to fellowship with other believers. Um, the reality is, is that since Jesus has restored you and I to a relationship with God, we're set free to pursue those things. And we're set free to pursue those things, not by our own will or our own effort or our own wisdom, but by the wisdom and the power that the Spirit brings into our hearts and our lives. And through that, we become whole. And in becoming whole people, we actually glorify God the way that we're designed to. So just a few points of application in what that means in the reality of uh, your life and my life. Uh, practically, how do we go about growing in wisdom? And the first one is painfully obvious, but uh, first and foremost, we continue to grow in our understanding of what the Word says and what Scripture says to us. You know, if you're married and you're not continually learning about your spouse, it's very hard to love them and honor them, right? Can I get an amen? The only way to do that is by communicating, learning about somebody that you love, learning what they're like. And the beauty of the Bible is that it's God's love letter to you and I. It's his revelation about who he is, what his glory is like, what he's done, and what he's doing for us through Christ. Uh, second, we become people who are willing and humble enough to ask for wisdom. And if we're honest, that could be really hard for a lot of us, especially when we're in the middle of a jam. When we create a mess in our own lives, that could be particularly difficult to say, hey, I really need to seek wisdom and counsel from other people. Uh, Proverbs 1, 5, or James 1, 5, he points this out. I think this is one of the greatest promises in Scripture. Uh, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. God knows how foolish you and I are, and because of that, he not only not judges us for it, but he promises us that any time that we ask for wisdom, he is eager and pleased to give it to us. That's incredible. And then third, that we surround ourselves with wise counselors. Proverbs 11:14 says that where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. And I think this one can be challenging for us, but having people to help us in our journey through life is key. And, you know, going back to the Lord of the Rings, Gandalf is a great example of that in the life of Frodo. He's not somebody that controlled Frodo's life and told him what to do at every twist and turn. Rather, he was a very wise and powerful figure that helped him in the key moments of his life to make the right decisions. And good counselors are like that for you and I. They help us to see the blind spots in our faith and see the blind spots in our life and help us avoid the pitfalls that they present. Uh, you know, I think that um, the best way to think about this that I've learned is I had a conversation with a very wise woman once who was a counselor and a minister from the seminary that I attended uh, early on. And we had a conversation about counseling and about Christian discipleship. 
and uh, about godly wisdom. And she made this point about having godly counselor in your life. And she said, you know, what I've learned over the years is that the best way to go through Christian life is by being surrounded by God's people, by having a few godly counselors who are a little ahead of you in the path that can give you the direction and guidance that you need. And having a few people that are beside you who can walk with you, that can empathize and walk with you where you're at in your season of life. People that can help you carry your burden, you can help them carry their burdens, and you can encourage one another. And then a few people behind you who you can take the wisdom and the grace that God's given you in your own experience in walking with Him and pour into them as well. And I think that's what James is talking about when he describes godly wisdom for you and I. That we walk through life with a few in front of us, a few beside, and a few behind. And that God makes us wise as a result of the work of His Spirit in a relationship with His people. And most importantly, Christ is over all of that, guiding us and blessing us. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank You. Uh, thank You for being a God who is so different than we are. We thank you, Lord, that you were a God of wisdom and a God of grace and a God of truth and beauty and light, and that you uh, do not judge us for being uh, people with foolish hearts who are so prone to straying away from you. We thank you for the promises of Scripture that you constantly give us and remind us of, that we are being transformed, not by any earthly wisdom that we find outside of you, but through your Son and what He's done in us and what He's doing through us. And that because of that, your promise of making us godly and wise and whole is sure to come to pass, and that we can lay hold of that by faith, Lord, and we can rest in that. And we thank you for the beautiful gift you give us, that we not only get to receive that gift, but we have the honor and privilege of sharing that with others. And so we pray that you would make us wise, Lord that you would surround us with wise counselors in our lives that help us grow, and that you would make us wise, not only in our salvation, but in the reality that we get to glorify you by how we love you and how we love others and serve them. And it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.